If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. And friends, we have a truly unique and interesting conversation today with Terrell Blunt. And we're going to be talking about hiring people who are formerly incarcerated. Let me share with you how I met Terrell. So Terrell is the chief executive of an organization called Formerly Incarcerated College Graduates Network. And Terrell came to a webinar that, that Lexi and I did. And, you know, I'm just a naturally curious person. And, and I was like, oh, my gosh, formerly incarcerated college graduates network. I, I need to know more about what this organization is doing. And, of course, you're going to find out a little bit more about what they're doing as we have this conversation with Terrell. So let me share with you a few more things about Terrell. So first of all, when I went and read his bio at terrellblunt.com, I read the most powerful, mind-blowing line that I've seen in a long time. And he said, if I could do five years in prison, I can do five years in college. So since graduating from Rutgers twice, he has been in direct service and leadership positions with nonprofits, funding organizations, and government agencies. These are organizations you have heard of, like the Laughing Gull Foundation, the Doe Fund, and the Urban League. His career has been dedicated to creating a more just and equitable world for people and communities impacted by the criminal and legal systems. Terrell, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the intro. It's always good speaking with you, Dolph. Seriously. Thank you, Terrell. And I'm so glad you're here with us today. And I thought a good way for us to start our conversation is you have a really powerful story about going to college, getting out of college, and then getting your first job after graduation. Yeah, which was a very interesting and um, traumatic at the time (laughs) story uh, or situation. But um, it was something I was able to learn from. So After experiencing incarceration from, what, 19 to about 24, 
and, you know, enrolling in college, achieving my dream and my goal, which, as you mentioned, if I can do the five years um, on this six year prison sentence, if I can complete this and come out of prison alive, then I can definitely complete five years of college if it takes me that long, which it actually did. The ups and downs of reentry, um, I think a lot of us know that people in reentry face housing issues. I was homeless at one point during uh, my sophomore year. I was crashing on the couch inside of my employer's office. I was sleeping in and out of cars. Food insecurity is another thing that I faced. And I was, you know, getting free food wherever I could, going to lots of Rutgers events and, and grabbing burgers and hot dogs to eat. And then, you know, all of those things that I, I experienced, which is probably no different than a lot of people in reentry, I make it to the point of graduation. And afterward, I felt this, this feeling of accomplishment. And I really had, had gotten relaxed, right? I felt like I had the diploma. And now, based on the uh, statistics and the rhetoric that you know, people have or a lot of organizations lead with, I now have this college degree and therefore it means that I can get a job. I'm employable now. Um, but that wasn't the case. And graduating in May, I think shortly after graduation, I, I made a mistake that I would, and I continue to tell people not to make. I went and financed a brand new car, um, a luxury car at that. I went and got an Acura, <laughs> a, a 2014 Acura, and I, it was 2013 when I graduated. So I had like a $500 a month payment that I had to make. And you get the grace period for, I think, about three months um, before you have to make your first payment. But I had that. I had credit card uh, bills each month that were coming in. I'm paying my phone on my credit cards. I'm, I was just everything was looking bad by like October of that year. And. Meanwhile, I'm going on job interviews, um, you know, switching up my resume and, and cover letter to match the specific job that I'm applying for. We all know, uh, you know, that that song and dance. And I couldn't figure out what was wrong. I'm, I'm going on interviews, not being offered jobs. I'm not getting callbacks. Things were just like falling through for me. I kept looking and saying, like, I got the degree. I didn't go back to prison. Like, what is happening? And I thought about it for a second and I realized that what helped me get the amount of contacts that I had, the relationships, positive relationships that I had with people, it was going out and meeting people. I would literally not go to a class or come to a class late. I would opt to come into this class 20 minutes late if it meant that I was coming back from an event on another campus. And I would literally go to that event just to meet the one person that I knew was going to be there. And I would introduce myself. I would have something prepared to ask them or, um, you know, if it was simply me giving them a business card or receiving one from them. That is something that no one ever taught me to do. It was something that I was just like, people are the things that are in between you and the job. It's not necessarily the systems all of the time because a job can have a policy written or unwritten on how they go about hiring formerly incarcerated people. 
they may have something that they they just don't do it. But don't you know if I meet that manager or that director or that CEO and they get to know me first, then they're willing to do away with whatever policy they have for me. So that's what I was like, yo, it's people that I need to meet. I can't be hiding behind this screen, you know, applying for all these jobs because they're going to simply see my record without seeing me. So that's when I I got back to it. And once I realized that there was an event at John Jay College in New York, New York City, and um, the event was on hiring practices for formerly incarcerated people. And I said, man, I need to go to this. I saw the people that were going to be on the the list of attendees. I saw those who would be speaking. I was like, I have to go to this. Um, And meanwhile, I was living in Maryland at the time with my girlfriend (laughs) at the time. So I'm like, I got to go over there. It was about, what, a four-hour drive from Maryland to New York City. And I went there on like my last couple hundred dollars. I think I had like a hundred dollars left. I filled up my tank, took the drive. I had to pay for New York City parking, which is very different than paying for parking probably (laughs) in a lot of other places. And I went to the event, you know, I I stayed throughout the whole time and it was during the Q&A when I stood up and spoke and I was sharing about, you know, we can talk about policies all day, just because an organization institutes a policy doesn't mean that the people who are a part of the organization who have their own biases, who have their own misinformation, um, it doesn't mean that they're going to follow it. And I went on to tell, share about my story. At the time, I just had my bachelor's degree. I didn't have my master's at that point. But after I finished speaking, Dolph, it was people lined up to speak with me. And I was receiving business cards from people telling me how impactful it was of what I shared with them. And I have two job offers that day. And one of them wound up being the Doe Fund, um, Brandy Mandato, who I now work in another space with currently at JFF, Jobs for Future. We now are at the same organization once again, but she gave me my first Um, job opportunity. And it was because I came back to what I found success in, which is meeting people and having those social networks and social capital with individuals. Mm. You have a personally powerful story. In preparation for this recording session, I did a little bit of research. And first of all, I found out, and I think I found this at the Prison Policy Institute website, that they estimate that less than 5% of formerly incarcerated individuals graduate from college. And so, like, you know, part of the power of your story is you graduated from college. Yeah, and I, I really use that to, to try to amplify some of the, the holes that are in the system, which we all are very aware of. I think, you know, a lot of people know that prison is a place that once you are there coming home, it's insanely difficult to get back on your feet. But to your point, to amplify the message that, okay, we it's not just that prison is a bad place, right? And once you get out here, it's hard to be hired by people. To say furthermore that, you know, formerly incarcerated people are eight times less likely 
to complete a college degree than someone who hasn't come in contact with the legal system. That is something like really worth examining. I'm eight times less likely to hold a degree than someone who's never been in contact with the legal system at all. The fact that out of the 2.2 million people who are incarcerated in prisons and jails, barely half of them, half of them hold a high school diploma or GED and 25% of them hold no education credential at all. Like it's things like that, that you can really connect the dots between education and incarceration because most people, it's not to say that people who are educated don't come in contact with the prison system. At FICGM, we have a number of people who um, received a college degree and was working, you know, well into their career and wound up doing something, you know, fraudulent or with money, mismanaging money. It was white collar crimes. However, you know, it was more so based on a, um, a poor decision out of, um, you know, being desperate, right, or maybe greed as opposed to people making poor mistakes because they are actually poor and have nothing and they're committing crimes out of uh, survival. The education piece is the most important piece, right? If I was someone who went to college instead of going to prison, I, I graduated from high school and went straight into prison. Had I graduated high school and went straight into college, my story probably would not be what it is today. So, yeah, we really try to I try to share my story to help encourage those who are currently living what I once lived, i.e. those who are currently in prison. But then also to the broader you know, public and really trying to say, like, we have to do something about this, because simply talking about the statistics and everything is good to inform people. But we really have to come up with solutions to um, help those who have come in contact with the system and eventually figure out how not to let people even wind up in the system in the first place. I'm grateful for that pivot that you're making in this conversation because most of our friends who are listening are in decision-making positions within their organization. They're the executive director. They're on the board. They uh, are the development director. They're a hiring manager. So what, what are some of the structural things that we can do within our own organization to create a fairer, more equitable system for recruitment? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, first is the, the hiring processes, right? There really, there really shouldn't be a movement called ban the box on, on applications. We shouldn't be asking for there to not be a box that asks us about our criminal history 10 years, 15 years ago, because the box should not exist. You have to think that someone who is looking for work, they're doing the right thing. They're not doing it because they they have to. They're doing it because they need to support their family. So why are we creating a barrier for them because of our assumptions about formerly incarcerated people. We want to know, is this person violent? Is this person going to do something on the job, uh, sexually harass someone? When, if you think about it, you can't make any determination if someone who isn't formally incarcerated are going to do those things. You could very well be hiring someone who does not have a criminal background or history at all 
and he or she can be the person that's harassing someone on the job. But to use our past with selling drugs or whatever that looks like to deem us not fit for um, working in your, your work environment, we really have to like scrutinize and really look at like, what is my goal here in asking people about that history? And then when I'm asking about it, is it really specific? Because I, I completely understand if, if an employer is concerned uh, at a banking institution and someone who is applying had multiple um, convictions around money-related charges, if an employer was looking at that and kind of had their eyebrow raised, I would absolutely, I wouldn't have an argument there. If, if this person has demonstrated that two or three times they've got caught doing things where they were like embezzling money or whatever that looks like, and they're trying to be hired at your bank, you are not in the wrong. Someone who committed a, uh, a drug crime, if they got caught selling weed and they were locked up because of that, and it was 20 years ago, and now they've gone through whatever college credentials that they needed to go through and complete. And 20 years ago or 20 years later, they're now trying to get a job at the bank to um, look at that and simply say you've been arrested before and not give that person a job. It's not cool. Now, when we're talking about nonprofits, right, because that's the private sector, we're talking about nonprofits now where we're supposed to do social good. Right. We, we're working for the people. I think nonprofits can be a little bit more intentional about seeking system impacted talent, especially where it makes sense. So what do I mean by that? If you lead a social justice nonprofit, if you're working with the reentry population, if you're working with people who have addiction history, um, a lot of a lot of people who um, maybe struggle with addiction at some point also have ties to the carceral system in some way, shape or form. And it's this thing called lived experience where the person who has lived through whatever it is that our nonprofit is fighting, normally those people have a certain type of expertise, if you will, because they experience that, that particular thing, right? So if I was trying to get a job at a nonprofit that helped, you know, youth who are in the foster system. I have no experience, no personal experience in that at all. Maybe I care about it because I learned about it somewhere. Maybe it's some like a documentary woke me up about it, or uh, maybe I had a friend or two that was really close to me and they experienced, um, you know, being bounced around from foster home to foster home. But that doesn't necessarily make me an expert. And I could work in that field I could probably be good at it. But what about, I think, the probably more qualified person to really speak from their experience is someone who has gone through that. And in our work, we have been really pushing that type of perspective as it relates to those who have gone through prison and have also gone through college. If there's a position at a college and prison program, we can we, and we should really be looking 
to make space for those who have gone through and come through our programs. We should be looking to pass the torch to them as non-system impacted people. It's great that you created the program because you have privilege, you have power, you're a distinguished professor at your university, you learned about mass incarceration, you learned about how education can change lives. That's great, I thank you for that. But at some point, I continue to challenge people to make space for those who have actually lived this, right? Um, because they they are the experts in so many ways. And um, to you know, kind of add to your question about like what can we do to support them, it's given or helping them gain the skills that they would need, that any director would need to run a program. So yes, I've been to prison. Yes, I've gone through college. I know a lot about the justice and education space. But what am I missing as a director? You know, I don't know the first thing about managing a, a team of people. I don't know how to draft a, a operations budget. These are the things, those technical skills, those, those skills that any director would need to know. Um, drafting a strategic plan. These are things where we where people might need, you know, um, their their handheld a little bit. And I think that mentorship is something that if we're going to be pushing and, and welcoming formerly incarcerated people into these leadership roles, it's really taking someone under your wing and, and showing them things. So you're essentially having like a, a succession plan saying that, you know what, I didn't experience prison. I think someone who has experienced prison is someone who should be in this role. Let me identify that talent and put them under the wing so that I can make my exit in a couple of years and leave them in the position where they're not, um, you know, kind of working from behind and catching up. I think you raise a really important point that nothing about us without us point of, okay, if we're an organization that serves system-impacted people, we need system-impacted people to eventually be running our organization, if not sooner rather than later. As I put myself in the shoes, maybe of some of our listeners, I could hear a listener perhaps saying, okay, but I'm a generic family service organization. So what can my family service organization do to make it easier for us to hire individuals who are system impacted? Yeah, I think that in that case, right, if you're not talking about any work that's specifically tied to incarceration, I would say in that case, if you're looking at someone, an applicant who has demonstrated that they were able to complete a four-year degree, they were able to complete a master's degree or anything past the bachelor's, I think that's what we have to use like our, and I, I don't want to sound like, you know, condescending or anything, right? But I think that's what we have to use our common sense. Because, and what I mean by that is that no one who's looking to be a problem within an organization, no one who's looking to cause trouble, commit a crime, they're not going to pay for four years of college, <laughs> borrow student loans, go through grueling semester after semester of writing papers for people. Um, and I shouldn't call them people, they're professors, but they are people at the same time. They're not going to go through taking these exams. They're not going to complete this four-year degree and then enroll again in a master's program and go through another three years or so 
of writing papers and dis- doing the dissertation to come to your job and commit a crime. And, that, and, and that's what I mean by like, common sense. So you have to ask yourself, even if you, um, and this is to the family service organization, right? You have someone who's formerly incarcerated. They got their bachelor's degree in human services. They went back and got their PhD in, in social work. Um, they're a licensed clinical social worker. And it pops up that they have a felony from however long ago it was. It doesn't even have to be decades ago. It was eight years ago. And since their release, they completed all this education. You have to think, would they do this just to come here and do something wrong? Like that. And that's something I don't think people take too much consideration. And again, just thinking about like, what am I really concerned with here? Because a lot of the times is people in our network have been through some really crazy things. I've heard so many stories about how people are like former gang members were out here doing things that I was like, whoa, I thought I was in the streets. Like this person was really, they, they are totally different though, Dolph. They're they're totally different. I wouldn't even say they're different people. I challenge I challenge individuals on that now when they say I'm a totally different person. You're the same person. You're just doing different things now because you have access and opportunity to to people who otherwise you wouldn't have those. You wouldn't even have access to these people. Like how many people where I grew up at in North New Jersey can go on their phone and have, you know, distinguished professors in their contacts or go into their emails and have executive directors email addresses and people in in the uh, Department of Education in D.C. Like they don't have that. But and I wouldn't have it either if I didn't go through higher education and graduate from college and and be a part of um you know, circles, social circles that otherwise they, they aren't accessible to me. So again, to those, you know, leaders of nonprofits, when that, again, may not be directed towards social justice or prison or anything like that, it may be helping, you know, seniors. It has nothing to do with incarceration, but it pops up that they, they did do prison time. If the credentials are there, look at what a person has done since they came home. Um, And I think by judging them based on what they've done since then and not what they did when they were 18, 19 years old, I think that's a much more um, sound rubric uh, to to go off of than something we did when we were younger, because we all did stupid things when we were younger. We we all were like, uh, so many of us were misled, uh, misdirected, if it wasn't something that was violent or anything like that, it was just silliness. Whether it, drinking and driving, I'm pretty sure a lot of people have done that. And thankfully, you know, that uh, so many of us did not get caught with DUIs. Thankfully, so many of us did not hit anyone and injure someone or take someone's life. But we all done things before our brain matured at the age of 26. And it just so happens that a millions of us wind up in the system. And when we come home, we're blocked from so many opportunities because of those silly mistakes. 
So one of the things I hear, obviously, is, for example, if you're at the family service agency and maybe a funder or state law requires that you do a criminal background check because you're working with kids or whatever, to use common sense. And I also hear um, when jobs are from you, when jobs do not require a background check by state law or funder requirement, to not ask, to ban the box. Are there other structural things that family service and other more generic nonprofits can do to actively recruit um, and retain people who are formerly incarcerated? Yeah, I think um, more so on the retaining side. I mean, well, let's let's talk about recruitment first. Uh, I think this is a great plug for FICGN, right? Because we have um, over 1,600 members from um, across the country. I think we're in 48 states. There's two states, which I can't think of right now, where we haven't gotten any members there uh, from there yet. But um, we have uh, over 1,600 members, people that have degrees in all different types of fields and areas of study. And um, a good amount of them are also, you know, working for like universities and, and nonprofits. So if those who are listening to this podcast right now or want to share with, you know, their their colleagues, friends, for any type of organization or company that is seeking to hire system impacted talent, I think a place like FICGN would be somewhere to go to to, you know, hand off jobs or whatever that looks like um, or have us post, you know, opportunities on there. And um, I I really want to stress this because for so long I've been receiving emails from folks more so in the uh, higher education and prison space. So, you know, there's probably 200 plus there. No, not probably. There's definitely 200 plus college and prison programs in this country. And I say that because 200 are definitely using Pell Grants to teach people in prison. And then there's probably like another close to 100 or so that um, are not using Pell Grants. They're uh, funded through foundation dollars or something like that. So you got approximately, you know, 300 college and prison programs across the country. A lot of them are in that mode of like intentionally seeking formerly incarcerated people to hire for these programs. They have a position called a reentry navigator, which essentially is a person normally that has um, come through that program. They've been home for a little while. And as people are coming home from that college and prison program, they may still have a year or two to complete on the outside. The reentry navigator helps them become, um, you know, acclimated with the college campus. They'll show them where certain departments are, um, they might show them where reentry services are in the city. Um, so they they are moving with intention and hiring like system impacted people. Right. But for, you know, someone who's doing work as a college professor, um, I wouldn't expect really that the college would necessarily recruit in that same way. So for those types of organizations, I think it goes back to what I was saying about just um, making sure that your hiring practices are as equitable as possible. But for the nonprofit, the 501c3 that is, you know, doing the human services work and things like that, I would definitely tap into our network because that's probably the best place where you can find qualified as far as like the education piece, 
you'll find like lots of qualified and employable people to to work for your organizations. And we actually been holding uh, job fairs, virtual job fairs. And we have lots of people that come out. And to my surprise, during our last job fair, before everyone jumped on, I got on maybe about 10 minutes prior uh, to get everything straight. And a woman jumped on there and I was like, whoa, I was like, it's about eight minutes left before people start to <laughs> join. Like, what's going on? So I think I, I recall seeing her um, her photo on, on Zoom. Um, you know, when you turn your camera off and the, the photo pops up. So I was like, I think I saw that the um, previous one. So I, you know, unmuted myself and asked her. And she said, yeah, I was at the previous one. I was like, okay. I was like, um, did you find it helpful? And she was like, yeah, I actually have an interview set up with um, one of the employers. I said, okay. And she was like, yeah. And furthermore, the emails that you send with the jobs, she was like, I've gotten several gigs from um, your emails. I was like, wow. <laughs> I was like, well, I, I'm going to um, ask you to write like a testimonial or something because <laughs> I need to be able to like quantify this. But it's so many people that, um, you know, are looking for work and they're just looking to move forward from their past. And we actually try to encourage folks to embrace the past. Right. You don't need to hide that you've been incarcerated because that I think that in a way, uh, you know, just kind of shows fear. Right. It, but it's about accepting it, embracing it and using it to empower um, you today. And I think for the employers, it's also about accepting it in a non-judgmental way, in a way that is is giving empathetic and saying, like, the person I'm looking at today is not the same or is, is the same person, but they aren't what they've done. That, that just because you, um, you know, robbed a store does not mean that you are a robber. We try to humanize people. And I think if employers did that um, on the recruitment piece, it would make things so, uh, so much easier. I just want to make sure that we're super clear about this. So it sounds like any of our listeners can reach out to the formerly incarcerated college graduates network and send in job announcements. And you will put those out by email. And also our listeners could participate in your job for your virtual job fairs. So if they have openings in their organization, they can they can be there and really promote their openings. Absolutely. Perfect. 100%. FICGN.org. And also we have an email address called jobs at FICGN.org. And people can email their jobs in the title or the, the subject title I would just put um, for posting or, or something similar to that. Good to know. Thank you. So I just wanted to make sure that I, I made that really clear um, before we move on to talk about retention. Because listeners, that if, if you hear this and you think to yourself, yeah, you know, maybe we should be doing more to hire people who are system impacted. Th- these are two easy things you could do. So that, that's why I wanted to make sure we drove that home. Okay, let's talk about retention. Of course. No, and I thank you for that. I thank you for that. Um, yeah, so with retention, I was just going to say briefly, um, I don't think we do enough of coaching and really supporting formerly incarcerated employees. And I dare I say employees overall. Um, there's so many people that I've seen at organizations that I've worked at where the employer, well, no, I'll say more so the their supervisor, because the employer, I think, can be misinterpreted as the entire organization, right? 
But a lot of the times, if someone has like a, a direct report, they struggle with having some of those difficult conversations about their productivity um, and handing in, you know, assignments or just completing work, whatever that looks like. And it may be, or it may be other areas, if it's behavioral or, or something like that. It isn't until something is either really egregious um, or it's happened so many times that they have to say something that then they want to offer, you know, like an executive coach or, you know, some type of support that can bring this person up to the point that you you need them to be at in terms of their productivity or, again, if it's, you know, stopping some type of behavior or something. I feel like in many of those cases, it's almost too late at that point. That doesn't mean that it it isn't going to be effective, but I feel like if someone enters the organization and they receive a coach from the very beginning to help them work on or just sharpen some of these uh, skills and whatever it is that they need to like really um, be a high performer um, if that's what the job requires. I feel like if they receive that from the beginning, it will probably reduce the chances of, you know, whatever it is that that supervisor winds up experiencing. And that was just something that I observed again through the years colleagues talk and everything. And I, I'd be speaking to someone and they'd be like, yeah, you know, uh, they got me a coach. And I'm like, well, you know, what was the reason? And they'll start telling me the reasons. And I'm like, man, they've been here for this long. And they said they've been having these conversations for this long. But I'm curious, like, why, why isn't this um, implemented from the beginning? So that's something that I'm actually looking to do at FICGN when I start bringing on staff. I want to kind of test this idea of like, hey, when you get hired, you're going to be paired with the coach and you work on, you know, these different things because it's things that you may feel comfortable sharing with them as opposed to me. And I even plan on managing as a coach as opposed to just a, a supervisor. I really want to have that type of relationship with my staff where they do feel comfortable enough to share with me what they're going through or what they're thinking and just having those honest conversations about how the work is going. Cause I, I think um, that's something that I, I've again seen is that a lot of employees are burnt out from the work, especially in the nonprofit space. And um, they don't know how to say to their boss, like, I really can't take on another project. <laughs> My time is already split between these projects. And now it's great that you got a grant to do additional work, but the answer really is to hire another person, not divide my time that's already divided six different ways. And now you add in the seventh. So um, they don't know how to say that. And I, I want to create a type of culture where one, I should be able to identify that and keep track of their work and say like, you know, okay, Dolph is already split between four different projects. Maybe it's not wise that I put him on, you know, this this next one. Um, or maybe I should drop this, drop these two from his, his work. And um, now I can add him to this new project. So not only do I want to be intentional about that, but again, 
if you do feel um, that you can't handle something or what, it doesn't mean you're less than. It just means that we need to figure out how to distribute this better. So that retention piece, I think, is so key because a lot of formerly incarcerated people care about doing meaningful work after incarceration. A lot of us do not want to go into this capitalist society. We A lot of people come home and just want to work for a nonprofit and do something that's meaningful to them. But at the same time, largely, I feel like we've been uh, not so great at balancing the work. And that burnout is what's causing a lot of people to, um, you know, just step away from their their job. So that retention piece, again, the coaching, I think is important. And um, just mentoring folks, as I said before, earlier in this conversation. I appreciate that. Thank you, Terrell. And, and I will also just reflect that I agree with you. So often I've seen an organization say, okay, we're going to try this last thing. We are going to get this person a coach. And it's almost as if the organization is doing it so they feel better about the fact that they might be terminating the person. You know, it's almost right. more about them. Like, we want to feel like we've done everything, not not we wanted to give you a good start from the very beginning. So I hear you. And, and I, I love the fact that FICGN is actually going to be looking at doing a coach for each of their new employees. That is such a great idea. Let's move to the off the map question. I know we are rapidly running out of time. And so I know that you have an avid interest in gardening. And in my experience, people that are about gardening are either about ornamental gardening, so flowers, et cetera, or about vegetable gardening. So a couple questions. First is, does that hold true for you? And if so, which one? Yes, it does hold true for me. And I actually grow vegetables. I haven't grown any flowers. I, so I'll share you. It's funny. I grew up in a home where, and I actually grew up in the nursery business. So plants, shrubs, flowers, that kind of thing. But I grew up in a home where our lawn always looked not that great, but we had an amazing vegetable garden in the backyard. So yeah. Um, yeah so um, yeah. so I think currently you're in North Carolina. So what are your, some of your favorite things to grow in North Carolina? So I, I'm really a pepper um, guy, I grow a lot of peppers in my plants right now. If I was able to show everyone, um, the plants are kind of uh, dying now because it's getting cool out. But I have uh, red bell peppers or sweet bell peppers, whether they're red, green. Um, I grow jalapenos. Uh, this is my first year growing Mad Hatters, um, which look pretty cool. And um Back in Jersey, uh, where I'm originally from, uh, I had an urban garden. So one of the nonprofits out there that helped formerly incarcerated um, people learn how to do horticulture and uh, agriculture, they had a, a garden, a community garden. So I bought two plots or rented two plots. I think it was like $10 each season you did it. And um, that was my first time learning how to garden. And I grew kale. I grew lettuce. I failed at tomatoes. I think I'm, I'm a little <laughs> afraid to do tomatoes from here on out. Um, but yeah, the peppers were so hot banana peppers. I grew, I was just giving them away to people. They, it was just so many. But kale and peppers is like my, my thing. That's awesome. Uh, last year, my husband and I, we had, a, we had a plot in a community garden. And the plot was infested with ants. As, 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 cause you know, we, we live in Georgia where there's just a lot of ants, but we found that while the ants would eat our tomato plants alive, every single type of hot pepper that we would plant, the ants would like take one bite of it. We leaving that alone. We are not, 
<laughs> we are not dealing with your hot peppers. So we had a lot of really great hot peppers, but not a lot of anything else. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, Terrell, thank you so much for joining us. And listeners, I always want to make sure that you are able to reach out. Because again, Terrell made a really incredible offer. And that's that if you want your job postings sent out, to the FICGN network, as well as um, if you want to participate in job fairs, all you've got to do is go to FICGN.org. And then I'm pretty sure there's going to be a place there where you can click and submit those job postings or find out about the events like job fairs. Additionally, if you want to know more about Terrell Blunt, it's pretty easy. You go to TerrellBlunt.com. And again, there's some really powerful things at both of those websites. I would definitely suggest that you check them out. I almost forgot. The other thing I have to say is um, here at Successful Nonprofits, we're really excited to be partnering with FICGN around a board recruitment and onboarding project. So if you or someone you know would be great for the board, reach out to me or Lexi and we will we are happy to share more information about how folks might be able to get involved with the board. Terrell, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you. Um, I really appreciate the work that you're doing. It's amazing. And I, I probably don't need to plug your uh, <laughs> your organization of business, but I, I really, um, you know, going back to the conversation you had about um, how we met and connected, uh, I, I share with you that the work that I saw on the site and just how thoughtful you were about um, your approach uh, to, to helping nonprofits is really what attracted me. Um, so I, I appreciate everything you're doing to help nonprofits thrive. Well, thank you. I am grateful. And friends, if you really like this episode, there are two more that I want you to think about because really today's episode was also an episode about inclusion. How do we as an organization create a community that's inclusive, that includes everybody? And so there's two more. One is episode 185, Six Ways Your Nonprofit Can Be More Trans-Inclusive with Andy Mara. I'll be I'll be upfront and say the sound quality on that is not the best, and often we won't run episodes where the sound quality is not the best. But that one is so powerful, and Andy has such an important message that we ran it anyway, and have always gotten good feedback about it. Also, episode one ninety four DEI leading by example with Jermaine Guillaume. So again, if you like this episode, check out those two, and. Lastly, please take a moment and rate and review the podcast. That, listeners, is our show for this week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive. And the lawyers always make me say this. I'm not an accountant, nor am I an attorney. And that's the reason why neither I nor the Goldenberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice Please, if that's what you need, find a professional, licensed, qualified person in your area and get that tax, legal, or accounting advice that you or your organization needs. And if you are not sure what type of a professional to find, or maybe you know, but you're not sure who to reach out to, you can always contact me. And if I know someone, I am happy to make that introduction.